Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Hudson Institute for a most interesting discussion on China and Latin America. Our distinguished speaker is Dr. Evan Ellis, a great teacher and a gentleman. Dr. Ellis has been a welcome speaker on Latin America since the beginning of our Center of Studies back in 2005. We have always shared a high esteem for the academic work of Dr. Ellis. Today, we'll be fortunate to listen and view one of the most interesting chapters of his latest book and innumerable academic articles. After he finishes his presentation, we'll open a period of questions and answers. Let me also mention our appreciation to uh, Rachel Cox, our Director of Public Events, and my assistant, Laura Ruiz. And without any further ado, I turn the podium to Dr. Ellis. First of all, let me say it is a real uh, privilege and honor for me to be back here at the Hudson Institute and to uh, be able to uh, share my, my thoughts with you and uh, to have really the privilege of continuing to interact with a distinguished ambassador, uh, Darren Bloom, with whom, as you mentioned, uh, I've had the, the, the real honor of, of being able to work these past, uh, you know, really more than 10 years. So what I'm going to talk about today is uh, recent advances uh, with uh, Chinese engagement in, in Latin America and the Caribbean. Uh, this is a topic that I followed for for some time. Uh, let me just mention also that uh, my uh, current uh, uh, position is as the Latin America Research Professor at the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. So, um, you know, as uh, a uh, employee of the government, I uh, am obliged to mention that everything that I'm going to say today um, is my own personal opinion and in no way represents uh, my institution or the, uh, the position of the U.S. government. But uh, having said that, um, I, I think you'll find that uh, I'm more than happy to be uh, very direct and, and very frank. And so, a warning in advance. <laughs> <clears throat> You've probably seen um, any number of, of different media articles uh, talking about uh, Chinese advances uh, in Latin America and in the Caribbean. Uh, in the number of years that I've, I've done this, I, I like to divide uh, China's progress in its relationship in the region into a, a number of different phases. Uh, really, before 2001, when China joined the World Trade Organization, uh, most of China's focus was on the struggle for diplomatic recognition of the region's different states between the PRC and, and the Republic of China, uh, Taiwan. Uh, with um, 2001, when you really saw exponentially a trade by the PRC and its companies with Latin America taking off, the interesting thing about that initial period was that while there was a lot of news coverage and excitement, it really was a period with very little physical presence by Chinese companies in the region. Starting about 2008-2009, um, and really helped along not only by the maturation of, of Chinese companies and the growth of, of Chinese needs, but also uh, by the uh, global financial crisis at, at the time, you saw a significant advance of, of Chinese companies uh, into the region. And I argue that that fundamentally changed the imperatives not only for the companies, but also for the uh, Chinese government. Because for the first time, although the Chinese government has long been consistent about its policy of, of non-interference, 
in the, uh, the, the internal affairs of, of countries in Latin America and, and elsewhere. Uh, this caused Chinese companies and the government to begin to worry about uh, you know, how do you help your companies win projects? How do you uh, help to protect your employees and companies on the ground against the, the very real challenges, everything from, from, from crime and, and social protests, et cetera, um, that you find operating in, in a very challenging environment? So, so in many ways, it created imperatives that how do you really help your companies and, and people now that they are physically present in the region while remaining consistent with um, those, uh, those policies that you proclaimed? I also argue that um, really in about the past two and a half years, we've really entered a fundamentally different chapter of, of China's relationship. On the one hand, of course, as the Chinese economy itself has decelerated in its continuing growth, um, that has combined with other factors uh, to cause a, a fall in commodity prices, which overall mean that the actual value of Chinese uh, trade with Latin America has been falling for the past uh, about two and a half years. Now, it's important to recognize that actual uh, physical sending of products and contracts and political advances are actually continuing to rise. But the dollar value of benefit, if you will, has, has actually fallen off a little bit. And also, frankly, one can argue that we are moving to a more mature phase of the relationships. From the early days in which, uh, as one of my esteemed Chinese colleagues, uh, Zhang Sushui, used to, used to talk about um, the, the lovable uh, Chinese panda there to, to help the region to develop in win-win scenarios. Um, back then, you, were either, you either saw China as the ferocious dragon that would you know, eat the region and its companies, although actually for, 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 for China, a dragon is, is actually a beautiful mystical creature and not something necessarily evil. Um, or you saw China as a bit of a savior. I would argue that today um, there is a maturation understanding that doing business with China is different than doing business with Western companies with its own challenges and its, and its advantages. Um, but I think we're, we're in a very different phase than we were just, just a few years ago. So the question almost always comes up, what is China attempting to achieve in Latin America? I would argue that China has been remarkably transparent at a certain level about what it is trying to do and its intention to have a broad engagement with the region. If you go back to China's first policy white paper uh, with the region in November 2008, um, and take a look also at the more extensive white paper released in November 2016, um, and also if you look at, uh, for example, President Xi's perhaps best uh, broad uh, policy statement, a framework that he calls one plus three plus six, it's relatively consistent what China has said with what it has done. Um, one plus three plus six means one plan. In other words, the idea that everything that China is trying to do in Latin America, politically, economically, militarily, and otherwise, is all going towards one unified effort. Three, which means that there are three vehicles. Um, so the financial vehicle, the investment vehicle, and, and the loan vehicle. In other words, the three primary ways that China has sought to expand its influence. Six, in terms of the areas, and it's remarkable, um, the areas that China has mentioned, uh, so uh, basically commodities, um, uh, electricity, and, and uh, um, in, in, I should say energy, uh, foodstuffs, uh, technology, etc. cetera, um, the areas that China has publicly prioritized have pretty much been the areas where they have most concentrated in terms of trade and, and acquisition. Now, what we aren't always clear on is um, 
the details of some of those deals and, and some of the thinking behind that broad engagement. Having said that, though, um, I like to make the point that although China's objectives are fundamentally economic, that does not make them any the less strategic and it does not make them any the less impactful for the United States. Because I always argue that um, the activities China is pursuing have a fundamental impact on the strategic position of the United States in the region um, and the ability of the U.S. government um, and U.S. companies to pursue their objectives, whether it's policy objectives or a certain agenda about trade and rule of law and democracy and, and, and other things. Having said that, it's also very important to recognize that um, China, having come into the current global order that was not of its own making, uh, is doing certain things in Latin America and, and elsewhere to try to reshape, um, if you will, to make a world that is safe for the continued rise of China. So I like to call attention to a couple of very important things, which, um, while I don't necessarily say they're malevolent, they are very impactful for U.S. policymakers. One of those, of course, is the idea of multipolarity. In the 2006 white paper, China, for the first time, made a subtle but very important shift, recognizing that it not only recognizes the advance towards multipolarity and welcomes it, but actively seeks to promote that multipolar order. Now, in Latin America, um, we can consider Venezuela and Ecuador and Bolivia and, and, and Cuba as part of that multipolarity. In other words, um, without trying to associate itself with anti-imperialistic projects, at least not overtly, one can argue that China clearly benefits from the continued existence of those types of regimes that challenge the U.S. order. Not only does it benefit from continued access to the commodities and markets of those countries, such as Venezuela's uh, 300 billion barrels of, of proven oil reserves, but it also benefits from the continuation of sources of challenge to the U.S. political, economic, and other project in the region, especially in places like Cuba and Venezuela, just across the Caribbean from, you know, some of the, um, you know, some from the U.S. mainland. In addition to that, um, I like to call attention to what I call webs of friendship. China uses something called uh, strategic partnerships. This is a, uh, a term that its, it's uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, uses. Uh, Sometimes uh, we look at, at terms and say, well, that doesn't really mean anything. These are just words. I would argue that the, the Chinese take their terminology very seriously in this respect. And what there are seven what China calls strategic partnerships in the region. The first, uh, the first uh, four were, were actually Argentina, Mexico, Brazil, then later Venezuela, and more recently uh, Ecuador, uh, Chile, um, and Uruguay, which actually received uh, relatively uh, little, uh, little attention. The other interesting thing is that China uses those webs, which are accompanied by generally a ministerial-level coordinating body, which meets at least once a year, in some cases uh, sub-level working groups, whose goals are basically to try to coordinate and work out difficulties with the Chinese projects in the country, and sometimes also coordination on political and other affairs. Now, in not all of the seven cases do those uh, ministerial-level committees work equally or, or meet often, um, but there are vehicles there, and these are the vehicles that China chooses to try to advance its coordination in, in, in the region. Uh, and beyond that, um, while we were maybe just a little bit distracted this past fall with the presidential election here in the United States, um, just about every single one of China's uh, uh, 
strategic partnerships, it actually silently upgraded to a new level that it had created a, a comprehensive strategic partnership. Uh, again, um, you know, China is actively working to try to increase that leverage and coordination uh, in, in the region. Beyond that, it's also of note uh, the type of multilateralism that China is pursuing in the region. So you have the fact that while China was uh, a, and actually ha continues to be a very active participant in the organization of American states as an observer, China actually chose the organization SELAC, an organization that was largely promoted by Venezuela and, and Cuba and, and others, as its primary vehicle for pursuing a relationship with Latin America. A relationship basically defining a table which explicitly excludes the United States and Canada as uh, um, the two principal uh, actors. You also see other areas where there is this um, strategic choice of multilateralism. So, for example, um, after the very unfortunate uh, decision by the U.S. administration to pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, President Xi showed up at the APEC summit in, in Lima last year, actively advancing the Chinese alternative, the free trade area of the Asia-Pacific, based on a model called the RCEP. Now, the reason why this is of concern to me is that at the end of the day, the rules of the game in the very important uh, Pacific uh, from Latin America to Asia uh, uh, area matter very much. And if you compare the TPP to the proposed free trade area of, of the Asia Pacific, um, the new Chinese proposal is one that focuses almost entirely on trade rather than giving attention to things like the protection of intellectual property or compensation for or at least trying to get away from non-tariff barriers. Thus, um, states that are, you know, have certain raw trade advantages like China, who have the ability to use the coordination between state and companies to force open markets, while at the same time protecting their own markets with significant non-tariff barriers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, with an interest in gaining intellectual property. Uh, these, um, you know, basically, this is a rules of the game that strongly advantages China, one could argue, to the detriment of a number of other countries in the region uh, who have other positions, uh, perhaps such as Japan and Korea, one can argue India as well, uh, et cetera, et cetera, as well as uh, those countries um, in, in Latin America, from Mexico to Chile, et cetera, who have a, a stake in the protection of, of, of some of their markets in, in IP. Beyond that, uh, also important to note that the international financial framework um, is a strategic objective of, of the Chinese. This is perfectly logical. Um, China came into a world, the Bretton Woods financial system, dominated by the, the U.S. dollar, in which uh, you know, we have the luxury of being able to run deficits and, and basically write uh, you know, checks to be paid later for, for any number of different things. Um, the Chinese have tried to structure many of their deals, from agricultural deals to others, to uh, banking swap relationships, to most recently in Chile, a currency um, an official uh, currency uh, uh, transaction uh, relationship in order to, to get the RMB, the, their yuan, uh, introduced into the international uh, currency system. Um, and uh, indeed, you see this progress with the International Monetary Fund being able to, um, choosing to include the RMB in, in the, that currency basket. What I would argue is, you know, finances for many of us, dry and boring, and that was a thing that in school that you never wanted to go to. Um, at the end of the day, changes in the international finance system have fundamental repercussions for the strategic position of the United States. And the advance of the RMB is something that we need to take very seriously um, in the way in which China is using its transactions in banking relationships in Latin America and elsewhere in the world to, to, to do that. 
So beyond that, um, I wanted to, and I'm going to skip over some of these slides just a little bit because I want to leave time for questions and answers. But I did want to highlight that as Chinese companies have advanced in the region, they've advanced broadly across a number of, of different sectors. So we see that, for example, um, you know, you have mergers and acquisitions, especially in the mining and petroleum sector. You have other activities in the agricultural sector. You have other activities in the construction sector. As China has moved away from uh, what I would call gift-oriented construction to try to, you know, building stadiums and roads to, you know, convince nations to switch diplomatic recognition to a combination of initially uh, construction in state-to-state -state deals in places like Venezuela and the Caribbean, like what they did in Africa, and more recently actually entering in a very competitive way in markets in which they previously were not competitive, including Colombia, including Chile, uh, et cetera. And um, beyond that, uh, manufacturing and retail, uh, telecommunications, companies like Huawei and ZTE, and, and even now some of the big Chinese telecom uh, giants, uh, you know, China Mobile, uh, actually looking to enter the Brazilian market, banking. And when I talk about banking, um, initially talking about loans, but moving beyond loans to actually branch banking relationships, especially in the Southern Cone, and most recently actually in Mexico as, as well. And, and other services, logistics we'll talk about. Again, in all of these cases, it's almost never Chinese companies parachuting into the region, but there's always a role, a key role for local partners, local consultants, et cetera, who often hope to, to gain and leverage the many things, the access to credit, the access to certain solutions that the, the Chinese buy. And, and in each sector, it's a little bit different. And, uh, and again, these are, these are things that are becoming very, very significant. Um, you know, it used to be said that, well, the China actually, Chinese just loan money. They don't actually invest money in, in Latin America. By some investments, by some data, and there's actually a real paucity of, of good data, uh, Chinese investments in Latin America is approaching $90 billion. And indeed, not even just in small countries, but for example, this year, for the first time ever, uh, not only is China um, actually a larger trading partner with, the comp with, with, with Brazil, um, Latin America's largest country. Um, but for the first time this year, China actually replaced the United States as the major equity investor in Brazil. And that's huge if you think about it. In the past two years, almost $20 billion in investment, not just loans, but investment, equity capital from the Chinese have gone into Brazil. I want to talk about a few recent trends, um, and it's going to be a little bit on the commercial side, and if you'll bear with me, I think it's important to really look for a moment at some of these details to really have a feeling for how much is going on, because these are things that are not commonly talked about in detail um, in Washington. We oftentimes talk about just Venezuela or, or just something else. Um, but for example, one of the recent trends that you see, and this is probably one of the biggest and least noticed trends in Washington, D.C., is the degree to which um, the PRC and its companies are capitalizing on significant economic weakness in, in, in Brazil, combined with the problems of, of the, the bribery scandal, Lava Jato, and, and the problems of Odebrecht, to actually enter the Brazilian market in major new ways and, and actually take over many projects that were previously run by Odebrecht and some of the other Brazilian uh, major actors. You see this in, across sectors. Again, um, in the past um, couple of years alone, um, literally in about the past decade, 87 different verified projects, almost $50 billion in a total investment, $20 billion just in the past two years alone. In the electricity sector, for example, you see three of the largest companies in all of, of China. Um, you mentioned the very, very largest, of course, State Grid, uh, which does the majority of electricity production and transmission in all of China it, itself. 
Um, they just completed a $10.8 billion acquisition um, of a company called CPFL with, with assets throughout Brazil. On top of that, uh, at the BRICS summit, uh, which just happened in Chimen, they, um, they got approval of a $3.5 billion project to basically build a 2,200-kilometer transmission line from um, the Belamonte Dam to the, to the southeast of, of Brazil, a, a huge project that had been installed. On top of that, um, you have another uh, Chinese giant, a uh, state power in, industrial corporation, um, who has had a number of different acquisitions. Uh, they bought Pacific Hydro with, with major assets in both Brazil and Chile for $2.5 billion. They just uh, took advantage of, of a, another um, a sell-off to, uh, to acquire uh, the South Simão. Uh, hydroelectric facility for $2.4 billion. They're, I understand, uh, proposing right now to, to take over uh, the assets of, of an important actor in, in Minas Gerais, of the, the San Antonio uh, power. So even just in those projects right there, you're talking about um, about $10 billion in new hydroelectric assets uh, just for that, that one company. Uh, China Three Gorges acquisition of Duke Energy, $1 billion. In comparison, even that almost seems peanuts. Um, China Nuclear Corporation has actually been in, in uh, talks. It looks like they may very well complete Brazil's uh, newest um, nuclear reactor, on top of, of work to complete the, the two nuclear reactors that are going forth in, in Argentina. In other words, the, th the only three nuclear reactors right now going forward in the hemisphere um, you know, to the south of the United States are all being done by basically Chinese companies. Logistics, um, although uh, the, a lot of the attention given to Hutchison Wampoa has kind of uh, faded off, and, and really the, the six major facilities that Hutchison has had around the region uh, haven't really expanded much in recent years. Um, below the radar screen, you have a number of major new port projects. And so in the south of the country, in, in one of the Brazil's most prosperous areas, and um, the port of uh, São Francisco de Sul, um, you have uh, a project to, to build out a, a major container terminal. I'm sorry, a major bulk cargo terminal. You have another project in the north near near Belém, which is going to be the São Luís Maranao terminal. You have another one where a terminal was just acquired in Paragona. And actually, up until the current moment, there was actually only one place where China actually operated airports in all of Latin America, and that was, ironically, um, in, um, that was actually in, in Colombia, the uh, six airports around, around Medellin. However, for the, for the first time, China has taken advantage of a company called HNA, is going to be operating, or I believe actually is now the operator of the, uh, the airport in, in Rio de Janeiro. So you see significant advances in logistics. Um, you see significant advances in, in agriculture. A small uh, trading company called uh, Pengxin, which was never really taken seriously in, in the past year, has quietly uh, gobbled up about uh, over $500 million in, in logistics assets. Uh, the China, company, uh, the China Oils and, and Food uh, Stuffs Corporation is taking advantage of some of the problems with uh, Indian companies, especially in sugar refining, to actually uh, buy uh, one, of the, uh, one of the troubled assets of, of uh, Renuka Sugar in, in Sao Paulo. Uh, you find uh, um, a company, uh, CIDIC, which is actually uh, a, really a large conglomerate, is buying a, a, a key um, a technology a piece in, in agriculture from, from Dow AgriSciences. Telecom, uh, China Mobile. Uh, China Mobile is, is one of the, the Chinese giant, uh, telecommunications giants. Uh, if its uh, acquisition of the company We is approved, in addition to the Huawei presence and ZTE presence in Brazil, um, the, uh, China Mobile will get access to, I think, 64 million subscribers of, of this giant network. Uh, medicine, finance, uh, the list goes on and on. In the interest of time, I think you, you see the, the point. 
And it's not just limited to Brazil. As I mentioned before, um, China is making uh, enormous advances in clean energy from nuclear to, um, to hydroelectric. Uh, and it's not just Brazil. You have two major projects in, in Bolivia, the Iravirzu. Uh, hydroelectric facilities as well as the Rositas hydroelectric facility. You have a facility that uh, was um, was actually just uh, sold off by uh, by, by Udobrecht, uh, the, the Chagya facility uh, in, in Peru, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they, are, they are in solar, they are in wind. They take advantage of the combination that they provide uh, relatively inexpensive um, long-term loans in combination with uh, technology solutions, and in some cases, depending on the local partner, actually doing the, the construction as well. Petroleum. Oftentimes when we think about Chinese petroleum advances, we think about Venezuela or maybe Brazil or, or Ecuador. Uh, the Chinese have actually advanced significantly, not only in their technical abilities, they're the three national, major national oil companies, but also in the extent, the geographical extent of, of their operations. So I would just mention, so for example, you have, um, for the first time ever, as uh, in, in Mexico, a very important activity, the semi-privatization of the oil company, Pemex. And, and with that, um, in the, I believe it was the third round of, of, of um, Pemex, uh, um, uh, Pemex uh, solicitations, um, a Chinese company did a, a, a wildly high bid. Actually, I think it was twice the, the level of the, the, the other nearest bidder to actually win uh, access to, to operate uh, two uh, fields um, called the, the, in, in what's called the, the Perdido Basin, uh, literally right on the, the, the maritime border between Mexico and, and, and the United States. Uh, China is advancing in Brazil, um, although not commonly recognized. One of the major new oil development right now is is actually occurring offshore in, in Guyana, something called the Staybroke Block, the, the Lisa Fields. And um, up beyond ExxonMobil, where our, our very distinguished uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson comes from, the major partner in that is a little company called Nexon, which uh, the Chinese company, uh, China National Offshore uh, Development Corporation, uh, CNODC, actually bought um, from the Canadians uh, a couple of years ago for, um, for about $15.5 billion. So in other words, um, the major player in that is actually beyond Exxon is, is a Chinese company. Um, again, the, the, list, uh, the list goes on and on, but, but you see really the extent of, of the, the spreading out of those activities in, in, in that sector. Um, and, I could, and I could go on and on, but um, one of the things that I really wanted to highlight here with this as well was this notion of, of the diplomatic battle. Um, as you're probably aware, um, not too long ago, uh, after uh, following a, uh, about, uh, uh, about a decade of, of eight years of, of diplomatic truce between uh, the, the government of, of the, the mainland China and, and the government of, uh, of Taiwan, um, the, the election of um, uh, Taiwan's new president, uh, um, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, Led to um, led uh, the PRC to to begin exploring once again um, changing the diplomatic position of, of countries from Taiwan to to the PRC. Uh, this started with two in Africa. First, Gambia, which had previously telegraphed its desires to to change recognition. Then, Sao Tome and Principe. But the first time that the renewal of that diplomatic warfare crossed over into the Western Hemisphere occurred with, with Panama. Um, and uh, it's not just about diplomatic recognition, but with projects such as the Margarita Island um, uh, port facility, which could promise to be a major facility, um, with the possibility of, of major new Chinese construction company activity in Panama, major new uh, Chinese uh, potentially uh, petroleum sector ac activity where CNPC has, has been silently in, in Panama for years, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think there's a possibility of it's not just about the logistics. It's not just about the nefarious people in Hutchison, Wampoa. It's about, um, it's really about the fact that the 
economic development and probably political future of this strategic banking and logistics choke point. Um, you know, frankly, the future of President Varela's administration in, in, in Panama um, will depend on the way that that relationship with, with China works out. I mean, uh, we, I think we're going to see economically and politically a dramatic increase in Chinese leverage over, over the government of Panama. Um, Okay, so turning to a few other things, um, I just want to mention briefly, of course, that Chinese companies are not without its difficulties, and, and how to resolve those difficulties is one of the challenges that Chinese companies continue to um, face, and Chinese government has to face. I mean, how does you know who does the embassy, whose mail does the embassy answer? You know, which SOEs does the embassy help, and and, and how? But beyond that, <clears throat> and, and again, it really um, it, it really opens the the question of of how does, does China look out for the interests of, of its companies while at the same time not interfering with the, um, with, with the policies of, of uh, Latin American uh, countries. And it was interesting to see that just as an example of the fact that uh, you know, the Chinese are not 10 feet uh, giants, uh, just literally, I believe, two days ago, uh, there was the announcement that uh, the Cherry, one of the major Chinese automotive uh, companies from Anhui, who has been entering across Latin America in Montevideo and in, in various markets in Colombia, etc. Um, Cherry actually just announced that they were selling off the factory that they built in Zacaray, Brazil. Um, they frankly had the very bad luck that they made this major decision to build a, a final assembly plant, uh, largely to escape the Brazilian taxes on the, the importation of, of Cherry cars. Um, but they made that investment right at the moment when the Brazilian economy began to, to fall apart. And so things have never gone well. Um, there are many other Chinese success stories. I mean, uh, the Photon facility outside of Bogota, AKT motorcycles, etc. Um, so it's not to say that China's companies are, are failing across the board. Um, but one has to recognize that, as with any other group of, of companies, there are there are some who do better than than, than others. Um, it's often said that China's activities in Latin America are, you know, mostly economic. And I would say yes, that is largely true. Um, that in terms of dollars and in terms of what's really important, it's, it's mostly about the financing, et cetera. Having said that, however, it's important for us not to overlook the fact that there are significant and growing activities across the board by China in the military realm as well. And in the 2008 white paper and in the 2016 white paper um, and indeed in its uh, May 2015 defense strategy white paper, uh, which the PLA released, um, they openly acknowledge the, um, the interest in doing that type of, of military engagement. And so you see this in three areas. Um, you see, first of all, the increase in sophistication of exercises and activities across the region. So we've gone from multilateral humanitarian exercises, such as the Minista, the Minista presence for eight years in Haiti, to um, more sophisticated, still humanitarian, but bilateral activities, such as the exercise they did in Peru, Angel de Paz, um, with, um, with, uh, with the Peruvians over a, a mobile field hospital, to the uh, sending uh, first, now twice, of their, uh, of their hospital ship to the region, uh, the, um, the, the Peace Ark. Uh, first, just to the Caribbean to make four stops, and then coming back a couple years later um, in a much broader trip that basically did stops on both the Pacific side and the Atlantic side. And then beyond that, uh, moving uh, in December 2013, while we were very focused here in Washington on the shutdown of the federal government, uh, if you remember those days, um, 
I, I being part of the federal government, remember it well. Uh, but it was interesting that during exactly that period was when uh, a, a, a group of, of two Chinese missile frigates uh, went over to Chile, Brazil, and Argentina, where for the first time they actually conducted small but still symbolically important combat exercises with our Chilean, uh, Chilean counterparts. And so you do see this cautious but significant uh, um, role of, of the PLA in the region, which is acknowledged by their own official policy documents. Uh, you also see an expansion of military exchanges, professional education, and, and, and training. So on the one hand, you see, uh, for example, um, going from you know, sending uh, Latin American officers to military schools in places like Beijing, Champagne, uh, for um, maybe three-week courses, to more sophisticated things, such as, for example, sending Colombian and other cadets uh, to actually the full four-year course uh, to become an officer in China, kind of the equivalent of our, our West Point, if you will and sending of Chinese to certain very prestigious institutions in Latin America. So, for example, um, in Colombia, in a base called Tolomaida, there is a very prestigious program for basically special forces and other combat training called the Lanceros course. And for the first time, the, uh, the, the Chinese uh, just a couple of years ago uh, sent people to participate in the Lanceros course, as well as the demining course. And on the Brazilian side, you have the, the Chinese uh, sending people to uh, the uh, jungle warfare school in, in, in Manaus. So again, you see this continue to evolve, just as you continue to see arms sales evolve. As with motorcycles and cars and, and other things, uh, the Chinese have basically recognized arms sales as a strategically privileged sector. Why is that? Well, it's the same reason as cars and telecommunications are a strategically privileged sector. Um, it's good for the overall engagement of, of China with Latin American counterparts, and it's good for the Chinese defense and technology industrial base. Um, you know, when you work with partners in the region to produce project products and, and iron out those products in local conditions and get insight into, into how to support them better and how to maintain them better and how to do better training packages, that makes the PLA more robust and that makes the products more robust. Um, you know, we do the same thing in the United States. As, you know, our arms sales is part of our all-around relationship with, with partners as well. However, it's important to recognize that this has moved from just a few politically oriented friends, such as Venezuela, later Ecuador and Bolivia, um, to the point where you see um, you know, U.S. partners such as Peru uh, turning around and, and buying significant amounts of, of Chinese gear. Indeed, um, for example, uh, there was a, a win by a Chinese company of a contract for a multiple launch rocket system where the... I think the Russians were a little bit worried about this because the Russians have typically been one of Peru's key arms suppliers. And it was interesting that the Chinese basically beat out the Russians in these competitions, showing how the Chinese have brought their quality up to start really competing and threatening the Russians in that kind of mid-level uh, defense market. And there are multiple others. Um, and sometimes the fact that these are small markets does not mean that they are not important. So again, Guyana. I had mentioned already before how strategically important Guyana is for us um, with, uh, with uh, its, its current president, uh, you know, former uh, military officer, uh, Brigadier uh, David Granger. And it's interesting because uh, General Granger, um, who is um, you know, arguably one of the, the sharpest and, and, and most astute presidents that, that Guyana has had in many years, and this is purely my personal opinion, um, but, um, but uh, he believes very much in, in the use of the GDF uh, for uh, national development activities. The Chinese picked up on that, and it was of note that they recently gifted the GDF uh, 31 different military construction vehicles. In other words, 
you know, it's not fighters. Well, it's, no, it's not fighters. It's not a problem. But the Chinese are, are smart enough to be able to plug into just what it is that President Granger and the GDF needs as part of weaving that all-around relationship with them. Um, and in places like um, you know, peaceful Costa Rica, which doesn't even have a, have, have a military, but actually has a very good police force, um, and, and, and always uh, peaceful you know, Colombia, the, the Chinese have, have donated you know, uh, small things like transport aircraft and, and other things. Um, now, I'm told by my Colombian counterparts that, the, that uh, they actually don't use those Y-12 transport aircraft. I think they've relegated them to Satana, but uh, Satana actually doesn't use them, supposedly. But they're still there. Um, very briefly, to mention telecommunications in space, again, almost no attention was given in Washington to the fact that just a couple of days ago, um, the Chinese launched the third communications, the third, Earth, the third satellite for, for Venezuela. It's called the VRSS-2. Um, so it's not just the satellite, but the fact that the Chinese also built and developed the ground communication equipment and the telecommunications interconnects between those ground stations um, and also trained the Venezuelan space personnel just as they trained the Bolivian space personnel and others. In other words, um, you know, the Chinese effectively own Venezuela's space architecture. Well, it raises an interesting question. Um, the, the, the VRSS 1 and 2 are, the, the first satellite was actually a, a, a geosynchronous orbit, a, what they call a telecommunications relay satellite. But the second one and this new one are what they call Earth orbit observation satellites. Um, and if you look at the type of, of orbit that you need, low Earth orbit for, for Venezuela, um, it also passes by some pretty interesting uh, parts of, of, of the United States, um, and especially the southern reaches of the United States, which raises the question, um, Venezuela, which can't even pay, you know, possibly its October and November bond payments while continuing to feed its people who have lost on the average something like 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 10 percent of their body weight over the past couple of years just because of the abject, horrible conditions in the country. Um, why is it for Venezuela or the Chinese so important that when Venezuela can't even import enough food and medicine for its own people, that they are paying up for a, a satellite um, built by the Chinese, to which the Chinese almost assuredly have access to, that provides you know, potential observation capabilities over the south of the United States? Again, it's just an interesting question that is raised by these Venezuelan and apparently Chinese spending priorities. Um, and, and in fairness, one can make the argument that there actually was an issue with the launch vehicle, so the Chinese can say, well, it really was delayed. It should have been launched a year ago, but the question's still there. Very briefly, I'll mention that there are issues with trans-Pacific organized crime. So as we build up the commercial infrastructure in the region uh, for doing business, uh, the banking infrastructure, the you know, containerization of, of, of cargo, um, this raises issues of, of going with it, um, money laundering, uh, precursor chemicals, um, human trafficking, et cetera, et cetera. And strategically, why in part this is relevant to the United States is what happened in Argentina. Um, because in most of Latin America, there is just about zero capability to combat Chinese organized crime. Um, they don't have the people with the local linguistic capabilities. Um, you, know, you might have you know, three people who have you know, studied to speak Mandarin Chinese, but you know, can they speak Cantonese? Can they speak Hakka? You know, zero. Uh, so in the case of Argentina, where they had a, a relatively difficult problem with a Chinese mafia group called Pichue, they, um, they actually brought in members of the Chinese National Police to basically work undercover in Argentina um, to, to solve that problem. 
And it's interesting, it'll be interesting to see that now that Panama has, has changed over to the PRC, whether um, whatever intel cooperation may have been being received from the Taiwanese, whether this will create a need and an opening for the Panamanian National Police now to start again bringing uh, Chinese National Police in to, to try to combat that. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, there's a lot of business that gets done with China uh, through Panama that, um, you know, in the banking sectors, logistics, et cetera, there's a great need. But with that great need, it creates a, an enormous strategic opportunity for, for, for the Chinese in terms of, of that type of cooperation. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there'll be questions about Venezuela in the Q&A. So um, the only thing I really want to emphasize about this is that, number one, um, China actually is owed far less by Venezuela than is often assumed. Um, the high-end credible estimate I've seen is from a firm called Ecoanalytica, which is about $25 billion. Um, I personally believe it may be closer to 10 to, to 15, because most of the loans over the past decade have been relatively short-term, uh, three-year loans. And, and oh, by the way, um, the Chinese actually, through the oil for loans contracts, basically are in physical control of the pumping of the oil that they use to repay their own loans, which, oh, by the way, generally never leaves China because um, the money is basically a line of credit in a Chinese bank, usually CDB, which pays for projects that go to Chinese companies. So my point about all this is there seems to be this assumption that you know China's interest is to turn against Maduro to avoid not getting paid the supposedly $62 billion that has been given. But I would argue that the Chinese are owed very little. They, they're kind of like the, the, the 200s that run into a, a bear in the woods, if you've ever heard that, that, that joke, where the, the one hunter starts putting on his tennis shoes and the other hunter says, why are you doing that? And, and you, you can't run, outrun a bear. And the hunter says, I don't have to outrun a bear, I just have to outrun you. Um, the Chinese probably know that Venezuela will economically collapse. Um, so the calculus is not whether it will collapse or not, but whether the Chinese are in a condition to get paid before Rosneft and before Western interests when that collapse actually occurs, if, if, if it can't be averted. Um, so at the end of the day, um, you basically have a position where I think a lot of the analysis is done. I personally believe, and, and based on also some of my conversations with, with friends in China and, 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 and people who work in Chinese corporations, that the Chinese are probably as anxious to see a political transition in Venezuela as is the United States. Um, it's just that what China wants Venezuela to transition to may be a little bit different than what the United States wants Venezuela, um, which actually should make President Maduro relatively nervous uh, because uh, it isn't him, um, whichever side that you, you look to. So last, last slide, then I'll open it up for questions, and uh, I apologize for, for the length. But um, so what? Why should we care about this economic advance, as, as some of my, 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 my good friends who know China very well say, it's just about economics. And, and, and you people in Washington, D.C., I mean, you're paranoid, especially you, know, you, you people that work for, for DOD. I mean, you, know, you see everything is bad. Um, I don't believe that the Chinese necessarily are engaging in Latin America because they're evil and nefarious people. I, I believe that they're trying to make a world safe for the continued rise of China. But what I also believe is that however much the Chinese would like to avoid it, that has serious strategic and security consequences for the United States that without begrudging the Chinese, we need to openly acknowledge and work to minimize both through working with the Chinese and in some cases in friendly competition with some of the things that they would like to achieve. Um, because in Latin America, what you see is that the U.S. voice and leverage in pursuing our policy goals, uh, human rights, democracy, uh, Western institutions, rule of law, is being weakened. 
Um, the Chinese, both in, in a number of cases, are you know, alternative sources of credit in markets. Um, Chinese companies, as I mentioned before, are getting ever better in using their soft power as local employers and providers of, of tax revenues to, to be able to increase leverage over local governments. Um, uh, you have the effective center. I would argue that Venezuela and Ecuador and Bolivia's government would not be in the situation that they are today in terms of, of their liquidity. They perhaps would have been forced to make certain compromises under the weight of their own internal contradictions of their policy had it not been for significant creditors such as China. Although China never tries to associate themselves with the political programs, but at the end of the day, um, effectively, the Chinese have enabled um, these, these anti-U.S. regimes. The trade not rules oriented regime in the Pacific, which I would argue actively threatens not only U.S. interests in across the Pacific, but over the long term threatens the interests of, of, our, of our Japanese partners, of our Korean partners, of our Indian partners, of our Mexican partners, of our Chilean partners, of our Peruvian partners, etc. Um, you know, we cannot, we don't want to cut off China's right to be part of the international trading regime, but I would argue that we have a strong strategic interest to have a, a fair, equitable, level playing field in which the Chinese and all other players um, can, can have a, a role. And globally, again, if you think about the role of moving towards a, a, a world in which, um, you know, away from a dollar-dominated international economy, and frankly, a world in which um, it's hard for us to imagine a world in which the majority of Western capital flows don't go to the United States and Western companies, in which Western companies are not the ones that fundamentally make decisions about where to realize productive relationships. And that might sound a little bit like Raoul Priebisch and Emmanuel Wallerstein, but at the end of the day, we are moving to a world in which those returns to capital um, and implicitly those decisions and influences are moving slowly but surely away from the United States and towards Beijing. Again, that's not a nefarious thing that the Chinese are doing, but it's something that will profoundly impact the U.S. and Western Hemisphere um, standards of living and, and quality of life. And finally, let me just conclude that one of the things that worries me as well is we are moving towards a new moral order. Um, a new moral order in the sense that um, he who has the money, um, people are reluctant to criticize. and. Um, I see it in Latin America in terms of businessmen and leaders. I see it in international forums. I see it in think tank forums where there is increasingly a reluctance to, one, one holds one's tongue in terms of talking about the negative impacts of Chinese activities because there's always that worry. There's always an economic interest for the think tank, for the institution. It's like, okay, let's just not publish that report. Let's just not put that item in the report. Let's just not invite this speaker to our activity because they might offend the Chinese. And oh, by the way, another part of our company has this really lucrative contract with this Chinese think tank. Um, we are moving towards a moral order in which our Western concept of, of open, freely self-destructive criticism of everything we want to criticize and destroy is possible. Um, and it worries me deeply, the implications of, of that order. And I think it's something that we especially now need, need to try to think about. So again, thank you very, very much. And uh, w with that, I, um, I'm, I'm open to any questions. Okay. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let Hani be the objective decider of, of questions. Yes, sir. Uh, 
Okay, my name is Wayne Young with Port of Harlem Magazine. And uh, my first question is, and I'll make it short, what's the difference in your opinion between trading with China and American companies to the people who are doing the buying? And number two, um, we cover things in Gambia. So I'm glad you mentioned the word Gambia. Because I was actually there when there was a switch between the Taiwanese to the Chinese. And my basic opinion is that you can see how the thought process just changed as far as who loved who. And you can respond respond to how it's also affecting Africa. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Well, first of all, there are, there are many good uh, Chinese companies uh, and, and there are bad Chinese companies. There are good Western companies, there are bad Western companies. Um, I, I would like to, so I'm, I'm talking in terms of tendencies. Um, so there are certain tendencies that one observes. So for example, in some of the major Chinese construction companies and in others where um, you know, there is a, a tendency to work with, with the Chinese banking partner to set up a deal in which um, the selection of the financing package is, is accompanied by a commitment to use a particular Chinese company and oftentimes even down to the level of the subcontractors. Uh, so um, you know, companies, for example, in some of the Venezuelan deals, it, it wasn't just that it was going to be um, China Harbor CCCC, but it was also that it would be XC AMG, um, the um, the uh, you know the state-oriented uh, construction company that, that actually supplied some of the equipment, actually explicitly paid for or rented under un, under the contract. Um, there's an interesting study that was done in, in Peru by Chinese mining companies about Chinese mining companies, which found that um, Chinese mining companies technically have um, some social capital considerations, and indeed uh, the Chinese government, I think, understanding the importance of that, has, has recognized the need to do to do more, and has actually given official instructions to its companies to to not avoid that. Um, but at the end of the day, there's questions about to what degree are those things enforced. Um, and, um, and again, you see across the board. So on the one hand, you had a company like uh, China Aluminum Corporation, which in the Toromocho project did a pretty good job in, in hiring people and doing socially responsible things and, and managed the negotiations with the local community. Uh, on the other hand, you have uh, China Men Metals, which uh, had, had, uh, has had just no end of problems since they jumped in on, on top of, of the Las Bombas project, which they basically forced the Australians to, to liquidate and, and sell off to them. So it's really a mixed bag, but, but at the end of the day, I think there is oftentimes a, a, a tendency for certain um, you know, predatory behaviors that come from, number one, the leveraging of the, the loans to guide companies and subcontractors, and number two, um, perhaps a, a different attitude about um, what rights are owed um, beyond what is there in the contract towards, towards workers, towards the payment of bonuses, towards labor hours. Um, and um, I mean, I remember talking with, uh, with one uh, very sharp uh, Chinese uh, friend in, in Colombia, um, and I asked him, I said, what is, what's, what's the, one of the biggest headaches um, that, that you have um, here in Bogota? Um, and he looked at me and, and very honestly said, Chinese labor laws. I mean, you know, we have to do all of these things and pay overtime and not. Um, and so, again, it's, it's not nefarious, but it's a, it's a different attitude that, that has, um, that has uh, significant consequences, I, I think, that, that we need to take into Again, I think there are some American companies that are better and not. I, I think there's, there's two issues. I think, number one, um, U.S. companies are subject to um, significant transparency requirements, especially to the degree to the, which they are openly traded, um, which not all Chinese companies, except those who are doing business in Western companies and registered in U.S. stock exchanges, are. Uh, number two, I think sometimes there is the culture 
that the Chinese companies have, um, which is maybe a little bit different from, from the, the culture of, of U.S. companies. So, for example, um, one of the best known and, and oldest uh, disasters in, in the mining sector in, in Peru was a, a Chinese company operating in, in Marcona, um, Peru, uh, called Shogun. And uh, actually, a U.S. company had been the one that initially developed the Marcona mine and um, as part of that, its culture had developed um, had, had provided you know water and schools and things for the local community because there was a certain concept, and um, and, and in fairness, it was later taken over by the Peruvian government, nationalized, and, and that created some problems as well. Um, but um, the attitude of Shogun again, it wasn't trying to cheat the people, but it, there was not the same attitude of, of we we're going to you know if it's not in the contract, we're not obliged to provide it. And as has happened actually in many, many different African countries with Chinese construction projects, that type of attitude has is, is, is caused, is caused a lot of, of, of friction. But there are good and, and bad American companies as, as well, but I think there are certain, there's, and, and of course there are certain things also like um, Foreign, uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which uh, you know, mean that a, a U.S. executive is legally liable and may spend time in jail for you know, acts of, of corruption. Um, it's not that the Chinese do not say that the corruption is, is illegal, but one can argue that in their foreign operations, um, many Chinese companies have not felt the same limits. Um, matter of fact, one, one, of the, one of the jokes among some of, some of my friends was that when President Xi uh, started his anti-corruption drive, for, for whatever reasons, um, that that actually uh, suspended a lot of, of Chinese projects in, in Latin America, in, in Africa, because uh, all, all of the Chinese uh, um, factory heads who were used to getting kickbacks were now worried that they would now become vulnerable to uh, President Xi's anti-corruption drive. So there are differences. I think it's important to not say that they are, you know, it's black or white, but um, there are important differences. That I, and I think there are differences where you know, not all Chinese companies are incorrigible and irreformable, but, but I think it, it's important for us to... And in places like Brazil, for example, where the state has imposed its negotiating position, it's arguably come to better working relationships. To be perfectly frank, what I've seen across the region is the places where the Chinese companies have taken, most taken the advantage of the local Latin American government and have, have most you know, mistreated the workers um, have been in all the countries. And, and why is that? Because they've basically been given carte blanche to, to give what you know, do whatever they, they, they want without the institutional and political oversight adequately of, of, of the regime. And so um, at the end of the day, good governance and good institutions are, I think, one of the recipes for a, a healthy relationship with Chinese companies rather than a, a, some of the more destructive tendencies, which are possible. But, so you raise a, many, many good questions. So forgive me for taking advantage of that to, to pile on, but, but thank you. Yes, sir. Okay. With the current, uh, sorry, Hany O'Kaley, management consultant, with the current um, NAFTA talks and, you know, the uncertainty of what's going to happen, where does China stand vis-a-vis -vis Mexico, and what do they, what do you think they have in mind if um, the agreement is dissolved? And I'm glad you asked the question, and uh, Mexico is, is a fascinating case. I think, on the one hand, the Chinese have been somewhat reluctant to, uh, to aggressively pursue projects in, in, in Mexico just because of, of its, its proximity, and, and frankly, it, it's been harder for them to do so vis-a-vis -vis countries such as Brazil because Mexico has, um, Mexico's producers have been so entwined with the United States, and so it's hard to make the economic case why Mexico should sell its avocados to, to China when you have to do commercialized shipping containers as, as opposed to you know just you know sending them up you know across the border in, in, into the United States and, and some other things. Um, frankly, um, Mexico 
Mexico is probably, of all the Latin American countries, the country which has perhaps the greatest intellectual capital for doing business with China, but has least realized it. Um, if you look at the number of, of, of students from the programs from UNAM in, in, in Mexico City to, um, to, 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 uh, to, to other programs um, you know, like, like, like Tech in Monterrey, um, from a very early point, the Mexicans had literally hundreds and hundreds of, of young students who could speak Mandarin Chinese, who had experienced um, things with China. Part of the problem has been the inability of the Mexican government um, and the Secretary of Economía to, to really capitalize on that and break into markets. And part of that had to do with the inherent the inherent competitive nature. In other words, it wasn't, okay, um, you know, like Chile, our, our primary export is, is, is copper and potassium nitrate, and then we'll import Chinese goods, and then, oh, at the margins, we'll, we'll do really good things with marketing and sell a lot of cherries and, and table grapes. It was, um, there was that inherent conflict. Um, and, and, and by the way, frankly, you also had an, a number, a very well politically organized manufacturing sector and, and, and business groupings who um, were just, you know, very worried to avoid that the Chinese set foot in, in the countries. And so you had a lot of high-profile projects. I could mention Dragon Mart in, in Quintana Roo uh, that were, you know, had, had a lot of difficulties. Over, over the long term, though, a lot more projects have gone forward in Mexico than, than you would think. So, um, you know, so you've got, uh, there's a photon facility that's been there for, for years. There's a, you know, a tube, faci um, you know, there's a, a metal, a copper, copper tube facility. Uh, Huawei actually has a pretty strong, um, you know, presence, although still limited. Um, but the problem is that um, the structural limitations, and I would argue that the political limitations, um, and I think there's some particular issues with, with, with President Peña Nieto's current, current government, um, is... I think there's the desire there to say, well, you know, if 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 the si los pinches gringos nos van a maltratar así, but the problem is, at the end of the day, that desire to sell all of Mexico's pork and sell all of Mexico's corn and sell all of of Mexico's oil to to the Chinese keeps being limited by those those structural factors, and so. Um, it, the Sinop deal was interesting, and and the new factory in Hidalgo was was interesting, but that was just you know a couple hundred millions of dollars. I think over the long term, um, the structural interest will continue to push Mexico. Whatever happens with NAFTA, and 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 I hope things go well with with NAFTA, um, towards the the natural relationship that 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 we have as as the you know feuding members of the family. Well, the Chinese clearly already are. Um, I mean, it's 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 not it's it's not unperceived by some of us in Washington that in his sexenio, uh, Peña Nieto has gone to has actually met with President Xi seven times. I, mean, I don't think there's any other Latin American leader who's who's met uh, so many so many times. Um, and you know, so there's there's the clear interest, and and I think part of it may also come through the Pacific Alliance. Um, so you have uh, now the problem is the Pacific Alliance has its, its own problems, but um, but I think Mexico clearly wants to look towards the Pacific. But as Mexico looks toward the Pacific. It's not just China. Mexico also has great interests in terms of manufacturing and other things of, of other Pacific partners. Um, Japan, Korea, um, India has a major presence uh, in multiple sectors in, in Mexico. It's one of Mexico's most important Asian investors. And so um, you know, it's not just about China, but, but sometimes um, in the political discourse, you, you, you just see it. But it's, um, um, it, I'm hopeful at the end of the day that this unfortunate quarrel between families we will, uh, um, we will be able to overcome.
Yes, sir. Alec Jackson, I'm a research intern here at Hudson. I was, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the um, potential security implications of Chinese having that strong control over particularly new nuclear infrastructure in Latin American countries, and what risks do you see there? Sure. Well, in, in general, I, I think there are a lot of issues that security sector decision makers in the United States have to take. I, I don't think that the nuclear sector is one of the principal ones. Um, certainly nuclear technology is an important energy technology which will contribute to the continued um, you know, rise and diversification of, of, of the Chinese state. Um, I think they are probably right. Matter of fact, you know, I, I think probably some of the most positive contributions that you see by, by Chinese co companies have to do with, with clean energy, the advances that are made in nuclear, hydroelectric, wind, uh, etc. Having said that, the security things that, that perhaps most worry me um, is, is the fact that in the undesirable possibility of a, a conflict with China, say, in the South China Sea or East China Sea as they continue to build islands that were you know, used to not be there, um, you or, or you, know, you, can, you can imagine a Taiwan scenario, you can imagine a Japan scenario, et cetera. But um, you know, it's not that China wants or that the United States wants a conflict, but in the undesirable event of, of a conflict, it's almost unthinkable to assume that China would allow the United States to play an away game. And so if you start walking through the logic, you say, okay, um, China has economic leverage and in, in informational leverage gathered through its resources in the region, theoretically, um, to influence the decision of Latin American leaders uh, in what way they participate in a coalition. Um, I mean, if we can't get the OAS to act on Venezuela, given the ridiculousness that's going on there, um, you know, how do we expect that companies who are deeply, um, countries that are, that are deeply working with, with the Chinese would support a, a U.S. activity um, you know, in, you know, in, in, in Asia? But beyond that, there are other things. Uh, you know, one can imagine the PLA decision makers looking at, at a map. I mean, if I was a PLA decision maker, I would start looking at a map and, and start asking questions like, well, if we wanted to insert people in to disrupt activities in the United States, uh, teams to gather information, uh, teams to create a diversion, um, you, know, you have a lot of, of ports of embarkation and points of sustainment in, in the United States that are remarkably close to Chinese-operated commercial facilities. Um, and it's, for me, it's less about Panama. Um, and it's more about Freeport, which is you know, 65 miles off of, of the coast of the United States, where, oh, by the way, Chinese uh, companies have put in $10 billion um, in, you know, it's the container facility, it's the logistics redistribution facilities, it's the air facility, um, and this new $4.2 billion Bahamar uh, ho hotel. Um, and at the very end of the day, the relationships, the mill-to-mill the, you know, -mill relationships, we often assume that, that in a war, um, you know, well, China doesn't have any bases in, in, in the hemisphere. Um, one can look clearly at, at what they've done progressing across Africa, you know, first the counter-piracy operations in Somalia, then the sending of, of uh, first uh, peacekeeping and now, you know, combat forces in places like Darfur, um, most recently the establishment of, of a facility in Djibouti. Oftentimes I look in Africa as indications of where China will act or how China will act in Latin America as its power and confidence continues to expand. But what that gets you to is the remote but not dismissible conclusion at the end of the day that you know, in 10 years, it's not unthinkable 
that, you know, just like there were some Germans in World War II that thought that uh, Mexico might be willing to bet against the United States because of certain territories that used to belong to Mexico, like parts of California and New Mexico and Texas, et cetera. Um, and they, they chose not to. I mean, we, we thank Mexico for that and remember that kindly. Um, but um, it is not unthinkable that there would not be in that type of conflict in 10 years um, actors who would not be willing to just let China have use of air facilities, just let China have use of naval facilities. Um, and in that, the rate at which China, based on the commercial knowledge, the logistics work that they actually now do in the commercial side, based on their mill-to-mill interactions, the rate at which they could turn a no basis present into a usable access situation, I think is a lot faster than many people recognize. And so to me, it's a false dichotomy to say, well, it's just commercial because there are things that U.S. strategic decision makers need to be thinking about that are the implications of those, you know, well-intentioned but, but just commercial activities. And, yes, sir, and I'll get to you, sir. Fellow here with the Hudson Institute. Um, two questions on, on Venezuela. One, on sort of China's sort of political maneuverability. They have, I mean, reached out also to the opposition and which in a sort of stringent interpretation of non-interference, they would sort of prefer just to speak with the government. But of course, knowing that there is potentially a change uh, of guards, they need to sort of secure that. So, so your thoughts on how deft they've actually been at that, at sort of being able to sort of look for their interests out in the future, because they've sometimes been good, sometimes not been that good. In Libya, in, in um, 211, they managed to be sort of the last one to recognize the new regime. and. Um, Therefore, it was a little bit of a latecomer uh, when there's a sudden uh, change. Um, and then the same on, on the economic front in Venezuela, when you mentioned that their main priority would be that their own loans would be paid back. So if Venezuela were to default, which would be a largely a sort of Chinese default, how do you see precisely there to cure that? Because normally you would have a sort of IMF restructuring or something, and here it would suddenly be China that would have to sort of help to make a five-year plan. It's a great question. Um, so. First of all, in terms of Venezuela, I think that China has actually done a reasonably good job at, at adjusting to a situation which politically and culturally coming into a place that it really knew very little about um, and whose dynamics are very much against what most you know, guys who just try to make a living in, in China as, 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 as managers and technicians and, and things um, you know, have to deal with. And yes, the, the, uh, the Chinese have talked to the opposition, and I think there have been a series of surprises that I think are rippling through the, the Chinese government and, and corporate culture about, that, you know, we really need to think about doing this and this. And so I think there have been a series of wake-up calls. Clearly, Libya was a wake-up call that if you continue to just do government-to-government -government things and the government collapses, uh, you, know, you might have to evacuate a whole lot of, of people in, in, in the collapse. And uh, I understand that the Chinese actually do have... There's been some consideration of the possibility if they had to do a non-combatant evacuation operation out, out of Venezuela, but I, but I don't think that's a, a immediate threat right now. Beyond that, but actually the something like 200,000 uh, Chinese, um, you know, both uh, corporate persons and others, um, a number of the, the Chinese have actually been kind of quietly getting out of, of Venezuela. And they actually, it's ironic that a number of Chinese Venezuelans show up in places like Trinidad and Tobago in the Dominican Republic. Um, 
because, you know, frankly, if you were seen as Chinese, uh, you know, you're assumed to, to have a lot of money, um, you know, either because you're a corporate type or you're a shopkeeper that may keep a lot of cash. And so, ironically, as the Venezuelan criminal situation in places like the greater Caracas area has gotten worse, um, you know, the Chinese have had problems with, with, with being targets. Um, my sense with the government, though, is that um, really the 2012, you know, uh, Maduro getting sick, I'm sorry, uh, Chavez getting sick, uh, the secession struggle with Maduro was also kind of a wake-up call. Uh, and I, I've talked to a number of, of my, uh, my, my Chinese colleagues, and I think they're pretty sincere. There is that, how did we get into this position? Um, I, I think there's still... The Chinese still have a lot more cards than I think is commonly recognized, and I think there was some sprinkling of, the op of, of working with the opposition. But again, at the end of the day, the Chinese are pumping you know, the oil. Um, their loan exposure is far less. If, if you think about it, if, if when the Russians wanted to get back into Cuba, they turned around like that with a lot less capital and were willing to pardon 30 of their $35 billion in outstanding Cold War debt um, just to get back on the Cubans' bad side, which only kind of worked. Um, you know, for the Chinese, where China Investment Corporation has something like $900 billion, of which $300 billion may be non-performing loans. So, um, you know, to what degree is China willing to put in check a strategic interest in Venezuela because it's so worried about the possibility of losing maybe 10 to $15 billion? So, so I think we often misstate that, that, that calculation. And the other thing, frankly, is, is I think the Chinese style, and you see it in places like North Korea as well, um, the Chinese tend to be very reluctant to openly betray a, a friend. And, and the Chinese actually don't have that many politically friends who are real friends around the world. And, and so, um, you know, if the Chinese are not willing to sell out King, you know, Kim Jong-un, um, you know, how reluctant are they going to be to, to sell out um, Nicolas Maduro, however frustrated they, 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 they may be? So... My sense is that the Chinese um, is what, and I think that the Chinese are actually in a better position than, than the Russians. Um, I think uh, Igor Sechin with Rosneft is kind of hanging out there with uh, you know maybe uh, you know eight billion dollars I think that Rosneft has in, in, in IOUs from from the Venezuelan government and and you know Citgo possibly not being approved as a Rosneft asset by the the CFIUS, uh, review. But I think at the end of the day, the the Chinese are not in that bad of, of a situation. I think they're hoping to get to a transition of a, a still anti-U.S. government, but maybe one that looks a little bit more like Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua that's at least a, a competent anti-U.S. socialist government as opposed to a, a bleedingly incompetent one. Um, and, and so I, I think... So I think the Chinese are looking for a different type of transition. And ironically, you could argue that everything that we do for graduated sanctions pushes the Venezuelan situation more in the direction the Chinese would want it to go because, you know, they can dribble out little bits of cash and consolidate their holdings in the, in the oil fields and, um, and, and, and really strengthen their position and their control over the transition without necessarily bringing the government down in a way that, you know, perhaps could lead to an outcome that would look good in Washington. Um, in terms of the, the actual economic situation, again, um, I'm looking very closely at the um, the, uh, the the upcoming bond payments, uh, you know, especially this month and, and next month. I, I think there's a total of uh, about 2.9 billion dollars, if, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, um, uh, the, the Chinese the Chinese have control over. I mean, the um, the current accounts of PDVSA are actually in Citic Bank in, in in China. A lot of uh, gold reserves are actually in China, which ironically those and others uh, could could be liquidated. Uh, again, the, the oil accounts are, are largely in places like CDB, you know, Chinese banks. And so 
I don't think we're at a point yet where the Chinese have serious reasons to worry about losing money or, or a collapse. I, I think we could be to that point, but I, I don't think that we're, we're, we're there yet, but, but it's a great question. Uh, yes, sir. And then I'll get to the question back after that. Land <coughs> Steve Landy, Manchester Trade. I don't think I've ever heard a lecture that has viewed implications of Chinese, of anybody's policy in as many areas as you have done. I congratulate you, whether it was military, economic, social. It was a great lecture and very wide-ranging. Thank you. I'm honored. Thank you. Uh, let me focus on a short question and a long question. short question is, are there, excuse the expression, Chinatowns, areas of Chinese population like there are Japanese and others throughout Latin America, and this is something that China is able to play on? My trade question is a little bit different and so on. China has great influence in Africa, because it's East Africa, it's East Asian trade models being followed. I don't see it being followed that much successfully in Latin America. Uh, number two, because of the fact that a lot of Chinese components, etc., are assembled in Africa for shipment around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, many people say our major objective in NAFTA is to change the content rule so there can be much less Chinese components that can be assembled in that particular area and so on. And thirdly, the, what really Latin America needs the United States and Europe for is this market, and we do not see, other than, of course, the minerals, we do not see... Um, China providing a market for China, for for uh, for value-added products from Latin America. So, sure. what is the real threat in the quote manufacturing or in the trade area? Thank you again. Sure, yeah, and great questions. Um, first of all, with respect to the Chinatowns, that's um, it's somewhat of a complicated question, and it varies by by country. Of course, as you recall, uh, during the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, as as the last Chinese dynasty fell apart, you had a, a significant outflow. Um, and so to this day, certain parts of Latin America have significant Chinese communities. So, of course, in, in the greater Lima area around Peru, um, another uh, small grouping in, in the, um, what, what's now uh, um, what's now the uh, Chile, uh, in places like, like Panama and in certain but not other parts of, of the Caribbean where, again, um, Chinese laborers immigrated to work on, on various different uh, you know, plantations and railroad projects and, 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 and things like that. Um, and, and then, frankly, um, some of those communities have been augmented by Chinese construction projects over, over recent years. And so as, for example, Desi Buterse in, in Suriname, um, and, and actually his predecessor, began bringing in Chinese companies, you had a, a rapid growth of, of the Chinese, who actually are about um, one-fifth of, of the current Surinamese population, but they always were. And, and that's one of the, But in Panama, um, depending on, on how you count, you have you know, maybe 40%. And so the issue always is, what is the relationship between that community and, and Chinese companies? Um, and it's often very complicated. Often, many of the previous generation Chinese communities have lost touch. I mean, maybe they speak Cantonese or Hakka and don't necessarily have either the business connections or the linguistic connections, although sometimes they aspire to position themselves that way. In some places, it works better than others. And so, for example, in Georgetown, Guiana, um, it's actually the Chinese community. Um, I remember actually one of the biggest trading companies that imports uh, Chinese goods in, in, in Guyana uh, is, is a company called China Trading. I've, I've actually met their 30-something you know, millionaire, a gentleman by the name of, of Jason Wong. I don't remember his Chinese name. Um, but um, but you know, very much you know, taking advantage of, that, of, of those connections. Um, in other places, I, I remember the Ecuadorian Chinese community in, in Guayaquil, who unfortunately 
certainly was you know on the wrong side of, of Ecuador's current politics, um, always lamented that uh, the Chinese companies preferred to deal with the Korea government and not with with them. So I think it really just depends. And there's a political dimension because in many cases the Chinese community. Um, in the countries that recognized Panama was was actually also a, an important tool for for the Taiwanese. And so, for example, you have a situation in Panama, which right now, which is fascinating, because um, you know you have a a, gen, a, a large uh, China, remember some of the most reputable institutions in in Panama, um, and some of the schools and places like that actually have Chinese surnames because of that Chinese ethnicity. Um, and I suspect that the new Chinese ambassador in Panama right now is racing against the clock basically to identify, organize, and, and basically regroup um, the ethnic Chinese uh, in, in a way that at the very least won't be a business and other threat to the PRC and, and at the best you know, can be more in service to the PRC. And, and there are a number of things that the Chinese do at the strategic level. And so uh, there's um, you know, the sponsorship of, of, of ethnic visits. And so there's an emphasis of, of your, your common ethnic heritage. And you know, there are certain scholarships to, to bring people over to China to rediscover their mainland Chinese ethnic roots, which become a, a way of, of building bridges to those societies. But um, those, those have some success, but, but not others. Um, with respect to, and remind me, your, your second question, sir. No, and that's a great point, and, and that really depends on the sector. So, for example, of the sectors that I mentioned, um, the one sector where you've seen that type of behavior um, has been in, in manufacturing, where Chinese CKD facilities, companies like 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 on, you know, in automotive, it was Jack and Cherry and some others in Brazil, uh, Photon in Mexico that I mentioned, some, some others. You say, well, why why has the concentration of Chinese manufacturing investment in, in automotive, et cetera, been primarily in Brazil and Mexico? Well. In Brazil, it was a big internal market with a prospect of access to a bigger market through the Mercosur arrangements. In Mexico, it was the hopes of access eventually to the U.S. markets. Um, and indeed, I think FA and a number of the other Chinese auto deals, the idea was we'll start in Mexico, and then once we're ready to advance into the United States. Um, but as you point out, um, NAFTA has some really high local content uh, provisions, much higher than some of the other deals. And so that um, I think that's been, a, um, that's been an important uh, Obstacle, and then your third question. Okay. Third question was that the That's a great, and I think that the Chinese themselves are very reluctant to say that there is a a Chinese economic model in in the sense that something that could be ideologically exported. They're they're happy. To me, it goes back to the Chinese self-concept. I mean, China, after all, um, I mean, the very name China means Middle Kingdom. I mean, from its very existence, the Chinese have seen themselves at the center of the universe, um, which, ironically, one of the reasons why I think often our discourse misses the Chinese discourse is because you know we're in a situation where basically both superpowers see themselves as the you know, as the centers of uh, of the universe, um, and. But to that extent, it's, it's, it's a different concept for, for, for the Chinese because um, whereas we look to, as we look to export universal values that you know we want to convert everyone. I think it goes back to kind of our, our Protestant heritage. Whereas the Chinese say, you know, as long as the is the tribute is flowing to China and they recognize the emperor as the son of heaven, um, you know, we're, we're good with that. So I don't think the Chinese are. I think the Chinese are happy to allow to suggest that they have a model. 
if that will play to their advantage. But I don't think that the Chinese look to export an ideology if that operates to the disadvantage of their companies and their political relationships. Um, and where that leads you at the end of the day. Now, I think what you'll see at the, the currently opening 19th Party Congress is that President Xi will be projecting a much more self-confident um, notion of, of China, that, you know, look how we've succeeded, and, you know, maybe there is some type of model. But I don't think China is defining what the model is or, you know, the steps that others should follow it. But what you do see is that com companies like Venezuela, uh, so countries like Venezuela and others, to the degree they take the Chinese money, CDB and others are, are, are happy to send their advisors and others to kind of help them work out the relationship between, well, how do you build the infrastructure and make this work, et cetera. So at the end of the day, China helping those socialist countries getting it right is, in effect, a, a type of influence over their economic and political organization. It, it, it's a type of really kind of guidance of the political administrative decisions that these countries are taking. You know, it's, we'll help you develop. And I think we need to be very careful of that type of influence that, okay, we'll let the Chinese engineers tell you how to do your five-year economic plan um, because, you know, you know, you don't know how to get it right. The Chinese seem to get it right. So if you just do things with the Chinese way and buy Chinese products and use Chinese companies, then, you know, you too will get rich or at least the leaders will. So I think we need to recognize that there are political influences um, and leverage behind that, that it's not necessarily nefarious, but I think we need to keep an eye on. But those are great questions, sir. Yes. I think we, that's going to be the last question. Okay. okay. Right. Um, Patrick Trainer, DOD. Uh, one of the questions that we get and one of the, the topics that is often in the news is, is Chinese influence and, and Russian influence in, in Latin America. Do you see, what do you see the relationship between the Chinese government and Russian government or Chinese business, more importantly businesses and, and Russian businesses? Uh, interacting in the region is it an adversarial relationship. Is it sort of a you have your areas of interest, we have ours? Well, can you go into that? Sure. No, it's a great question. Um, my sense is, first of all, it's complicated. Now, you will know that at the political level, the the type of of explicit cooperation that you see in in Asia, for example, with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization or or with military exercises between China and Russia, um, you really don't see that type of cooperation in in Latin America. I think at the corporate level, um, in general, there's more of a competition. Um, you know, the Chinese arms companies, Norinco, Polytechnologies, Avic, etc., are basically taking market share away from the Russians, and so there's a competition there. Um, there's a competition, or in some cases there's benefit, but for example, in the mining sector, you've got Russia Aluminum Corporation, Rusal, and it's actually the Chinese are, are basically buying defunct Russian mining companies in places like, operations in places like Jamaica, as they, you know, lack the liquidity to put the investment in you know, themselves. Uh, other sectors like, like petroleum, uh, you find again, um, you know, uh, uh, you know com companies like Rosneft um, are... I mean, there's probably enough Venezuelan oil for, for both, but there's a certain inherent competition. Now, now having said that, I think there's an inherent synergy in that um, with all the countries which are disposed basically to deal with the Chinese, the Russians, and, and a few others, that the Chinese capital that they loan, while it mostly goes towards you know, the purchase of Chinese projects and Chinese products, uh, does help those regimes to maintain solvency and political latitude so that they can also do things with the Russians that they, they never dare. And so, um, you know, while the, the Chinese style would never have been to, you know, 
to send nuclear-capable bombers like the Russians did first in 2008 and again 2014 um, to, to Venezuela. The fact that the Chinese continue to bankroll the Venezuelan regime uh, allowed for the continuation, the continuity of, um, of course, uh, Chavez and Maduro in, in power that gave him the latitude then to reach out and, and accept in those moments when Vladimir Putin wanted to send the nefarious gringos a, a message about mucking around in the Russian backyard, um, thanks to Chinese money, um, there was a leader in Caracas that was willing to, to do that. And so there's a inherent, I don't think there's actual coordination, but you know, who knows what you don't know. But um, you know, it, at the end of the day, it comes down to good governance to me, um, because you know, it's not that the Chinese or the Chinese companies are bad. It's not that, frankly, the Russian companies are, are bad. But at the end of the day, if you have open, transparent decisions and credible democratic governance, um, A, they will help the development of the peoples of those countries and not create openings for basically anti-Western, you know, resentful populist projects. And, oh, by the way, at the end of the day, um, you, will, you will force Chinese, Russian, and other companies to behave in such a way that is, is market-following and beneficial for those places rather than to basically you know, capture those, those markets to the benefit of, of just a, a handful of leaders. So, um, so, so I think it's, um, at the end of the day, it's all about governance. But um, if we do it wrong, uh, we see some of the, the very um, unfortunate uh, effects. But great question. Yes. We thank you very much for your attendance this afternoon, and uh, we'll keep you posted on the next one. Uh, why don't we give uh, Dr. Ellis a final round of applause? <laughs>